Good morning, everyone. Welcome to the Perth Property Show. My name's Trent Fleskins, your host as always. This week, we have an expert developer in the room. We haven't done this for a while. It's taken a while to get this guy into this studio, but it's a very poignant time to be discussing this topic. It's Tim Willing of Willing, the developer that you would have seen hyper-local around that Mount Lawley, doing projects on Clifton Street, Field Street in Perth proper these days. And geez, they're some of the most beautiful developments we've seen on paper and coming out of the ground and more impressively they're actually coming out of the ground in a time where we've had these conversations on the podcast over the last couple of years about essentially no one getting their developments off the ground in the apartment space tim seems to have the magic source he's got the solution he's got it seems many solutions that have allowed him to get from concept acquisition planning through to actual construction and delivery where most people are not in western australia right now so i thought it'd be a perfect time for those punters on the street and additionally those experts in his space as well in that apartment space to look at a guy who's actually getting it done so tim willing thank you very much for coming in mate thank you Trent. absolute pleasure to be here I hope that was a good enough introduction. Oh, wonderful. Gosh, <laughs> couldn't have said it better myself. <laughs> look, like we do with all experts that come into this room that a lot of people in the industry can look up to, I like to start the conversation with a very humble converse, humble chat about where things started. Yeah. Right before Willing was a thing, before Tim, Tim Willing was known in the industry, mm-hmm. before the products were coming out, where did it all start? Did it start at uni? Did it start at TAFE? Did it start on a construction site? How do you make that move into this industry? For me, it started on building sites. I really grew up on building sites. I was lucky. My dad was a, a chippy. Then he was a small builder. I spent my holidays probably like other kids there working and being on building sites. It evolved from there. I'd spent a number of, of years overseas after school and so on uh, racing bicycles. I had a great hope that I was going to be a professional cyclist. And look, I lived in France and raced in France and Holland and I wasn't quite as good as I hoped I was going to be. And I came back to Australia thinking I'd go into property. And I started in real estate, selling real estate for Carter's Real Estate in Maylands. I didn't go to university at all. I'd been at the Institute of Sport and I'd come from a sporting background. But look, you know, we're an inherent property family. My grandfather was an earlier land developer in the East Coast. So I suppose it was in the blood, as it were. Seems like it's something you were destined to move towards. Yes. However, there's a, still a big jump there from selling real estate, which anyone can start and not many people succeed at, mm. but an even bigger jump in moving from sales through to that much more complex space, to be frank, of development, coordinating a multidiscipline team yeah, yeah. of consultants, internal staff mm. to bring some stuff up that, to be frank, most people never have the opportunity to do. It didn't evolve swiftly, I can say. From my early 20s, I was selling real estate in Maylands. I absolutely loved it. Then I had an opportunity or created an opportunity really to go to Southeast Asia and started working for Jones Lang Wooten in Jakarta and Singapore at the time when we were selling real estate all over the world. And that really piqued my interest into these projects and how they were being marketed and sold off the plan. And we were selling projects in Singapore and London at the time and and also in Sydney a lot. I spent a few years there with Jones Lang. Then I ended up in Sydney for Collier's Jardine and we were also selling projects. And so I got exposure to a lot of different developers at the time and we were working with Australia's leading developers there out of Sydney, Lang Walker and others that got exposed to Multiplex, really got me interested in, in property development 
development. I then decided to move back to Perth in the late 90s. I'd saved a small amount of money and I banded a few friends together and developed a small project in East Perth, which was the new part of East Perth at the time. It was five townhouses. They were hugely optimistic. They were three-level townhouses. It's sort of idea I'd seen done in Balmain, actually. I think they sold for around 300000 each or thereabouts. And it, it was at a time that you could build things and convince financiers to back someone with absolutely no background. But based on an idea. Yeah, based on an idea. And look, I've never been short of ideas, but, but and luckily my ideas, though, are confined to property largely. So I'm sort of hugely focused on trying to get an idea off the ground. And luckily, uh, I found some people that, that loved the idea and uh, we managed to buy a site off the East Perth Development Authority at the time. I was 27. I got a financier involved that, you know, would be now referred to as a shadow lender and and we successfully did a project. And look, interestingly, I was selling property at the time anyway. I'd established my own project marketing company here in Perth. That was your cash um, flow. Yeah, but project marketing and sales, yeah, it's not a huge weight of cash flow as it were, but it certainly allowed me to survive. Look, that was the first project. And then I ended up shortly thereafter, Multiplex were launching a national development business. It was called Multiplex Living. Tim Roberts at the time came to me and he said, oh, look, I love how you market the projects and, and so on here in Perth. We're doing a new development business. Would you like to come and head it up for us? And, and so I ended up going from what I was doing on a, on a small basis to a much bigger basis, probably through the confidence someone else had in me in, uh, in being able to help them. Sounds like you're putting all those pieces of the puzzle together without at the time, probably just like I look back on, on my career today mm. without knowing it. Yeah, it's, yeah, it's funny how you can look back and see the stepping stones you've stepped on to cross that river. Mm. But at the time, you're just taking one step in a direction that seems to be obviated to you when you think about all that time spent selling off the plan apartments around the world. Mm. At the time, it was probably just a gig for you. That was interesting to you and exciting. I was exciting. passionate about it, though. Yeah. You know, I've always been a passionate about property. And I think, as you say, not one for huge business plans or and so on. I think as long as you keep moving forward and have a clear idea, the, the, the opportunities open up to you and some days you don't think you're getting anywhere and, and, and of course you are. I think Multiplex was a huge, when I, when I look back, getting to Asia was huge, opening my eyes to possibility that was much bigger than Australia. It was then the I, future really. Absolutely and coming back to Australia, Multiplex was absolutely an icon if you're from Perth and they did some of the most amazing projects around Australia and continue to do so And but at that time were the developers as well and had an aspiration to be and you know, I was lucky to be part of it at a time where we did three and a half thousand apartments. So was there's you know apartments in Australia and the UK and all over. So it was an amazing exposure, and I think they were a business too that. It came from a construction business to a development business. I suppose here we are all these years later and I've gone from a development business uh, to a construction business yeah. as well. So, uh, albeit the, the other way. <laughs> so what you've learned there in that time of your life is essentially sales, branding. Yes. You've watched a large company construct as well. You've got that from family too. Mm. You're, you're applying your trade in the small scale right now and pulling together those small projects. Mm. How did you start to make those stepping stones? Was it a fairly linear process whereas you just accumulated a bit more personal uh, capital you decided well I can afford to do this size now let's have a crack at that. Multiplex had a change of direction with new ownership and weren't being developers anymore and so it was obvious to me that at that time was coming to an end. I was here in Perth I had a young family in 2012 I decided to do my own projects and I had a very clear vision for what that meant. It's evolved along the way of course but 
I suppose what I realised in seeing the very big projects and then seeing the very small and everything in between, there's really not a lot of difference other than capital availability. They take the similar amount of effort to Mm. do a small or a large project. But what I've been interested in size-wise is around right size for Perth, and that's what I refer to it as, right size for, for our streets and our demographic, and more specifically for my market. And my market is very specific. So they're by nature smaller projects and when I say smaller we might do anything from 20 apartments would be at the absolute smallest up to around 40 and look I don't see that changing I see us evolving and doing more and more beautifully refined projects every time I would hope but I don't have an aspiration if you like to do 100 apartments for example it's a different game in a lot of the way whilst the theory is the same process is often the same the scales different often your market's different as well when you start getting bigger and as we can clearly see from where your efforts are pushing towards it is that right sizing downsizing market in those leafy green suburbs around perth currently hyper local in that mount lawley sort mm. of space isn't it it is and as we've spoken to uh, i like to do beautiful projects that are in areas that are incredibly tightly held and they're, they're tightly held for the right reasons uh, they're leafy they're beautiful they've got great heritage value and we're very respectful of that and, and I think I'm all about, I guess, timeless beauty, a quiet elegance that sits on the streetscapes and a rarity. I don't want to be trying to do a multitude of apartments. The value is in the rarity and our buyers are recognising that. I think that we do apartments that people choose to live in and because of the size and because of the, the locations that they're in. That's what we're, we're certainly continuing to do. If we can segue to the first project, I remember seeing you undertake, that was one in Guildford, mm. a bit of a heritage theme to that. Now, yeah. uh, Guildford, Midland, that area has really swung in prices over the last 15, 20 years. It had a bit of a peak when everyone else was peaking and it really crashed after that to be one of the worst performing areas in, in Western Australia for a period there. Your project came up and finished in the good times, luckily, mm. but also a very different timing with regards to construction prices and those pressures too. Mm. Uh, would, would you say that was was a company making project whilst that was the first you saw i suppose we've been focused on heritage areas or areas with great value around amenity whether that's cultural whether that's uh, restaurants whether that's transport and sporting and health and so on and the first project we did was actually in mount hawthorne and then we did Fremantle, Bayswater, Bassendine, and then Guildford was probably the fourth. And yet, look, that was a, a marker for me. And interestingly, too, when you talk about the good times, I mean, as a developer, the good times at that time, no one from the East Coast was interested in backing. I've only had two partners in the entire period of development in terms of capital. One was the late Paul Ramsey of Ramsey Private Health. They backed us initially uh, and that gave us great confidence. He was highly passionate about property and, and, and a very inspirational man. And interestingly, when we did Guildford, you couldn't sell things. Mm-hmm. You know, sales was not something that, you know, people weren't interested. But you could build things. But uh, what I've always b- believed uh, with Off Plan is that we've got to develop things that capture the imagination of people, that actually catapult them into an inquiry with our sales team, if you like, or a visiting the display office that 
gee, they didn't they, they weren't didn't wake up thinking we we're going to go and look at apartments. But gee, this looks so fabulous. I've just got to go and have a look. Mm. And we sold that out in six weeks at a time when people just weren't selling projects. And we then built it very well. And we started our first coffee shop there in Willing Coffee. And so I suppose the sort of refinement of our model, if you like, was first best epitomised with Guildford uh, mm. because of the coffee shop as well. When you mention those suburbs, everyone from Perth will recognise they're all town centres and yes. most of them have heritage value. They may not have heritage restrictions, but when you think about Bassendine, Bayswater, these areas, there are small activity centres around there that have been around for most of last century. Look, indeed. And I think that if you're going to be developing apartments, to me, a big part of it is walkability. And if it's not walkable, you need to be creating your own village. Mm. And the areas that we're in, they're carefully selected. As you say, they have a town, a traditional town centre in that sense. They've got great transport amenity. They've got great other lifestyle, cultural, medical amenity. It's got to be the way of the future and, and it, it's the way of now as I see it. Our signature is the brickwork that we bring to the projects and, and those areas are all characterised by this, if you will, federation brickwork and mm. by chance it's the most sustainable form of construction one could argue. It's made to last for hundreds of years. The clay comes from not much further than 100 kilometres from Perth and so that epitomises, if you like, the signature of our buildings. I think it's also a timeless feature and I'm not sure you're doing this on purpose but you can start to see that's a willing project which brings that fabric of of clearly who you are and what you value but it's one thing I've noted even in looking to design my own home at some point is which architectural styles are in vogue this decade Mm. and which ones have to be frank have been in vogue for a hundred years and will probably be for another hundred years it's pretty obvious there's a couple of ones there that's it's your federation Mm. it's probably a little bit of your french provincial Mm. that one seems to be everlasting as well Mm. but there's a lot of styles that you can see oh 10 years ago the barley theme was cool it's not really that cool anymore 20 years ago there was a lot of sand render going on Mm. not really that cool anymore clearly you've noted that we're about timeless elegance i suppose and, and and a quiet beauty if you like, that sits on the streets and and takes from the context of the streets we build in. And as you rightly pointed out, uh, you know, Federation uh, is hallmarks of that. We build in a very traditional manner. There was a lot of negatives, though, to Federation simile and the very small windows, for example, and so on that no one wants part Mm. of anymore. But the crafted detail that the brickwork demanded at those times and the, and the, the timeless nature of those buildings, that's something I'm very attached to. And and I think that you'll see an evolution of that simile. We're developing in Kulbinia, which largely came about in a period just after Mount Lawley. An old petrol and, station. Ah, well, that's the particular site we're developing on. But, you know, from a more a broader context of locality, there's a lot of architectural styles, but then there's a lot of sort of post-war you know, I call this sort of this, this hopeful period where, that ultimately culminated in mid-century modern. But then how do you extrapolate that out and, and how do we interpret that for the streets that we need to provide for today? We've done something there uh, or proposed something that has been approved that I think will sit very proudly in anchoring what is a locality albeit beautiful once you're off Walcott Street, it's absolutely bereft of any town <laughs> centre. It is. Uh, it's like a sort of drag strip up Walcott Street for some. I think there's 22,000 cars pass there a day. What we're proposing is to create a village centre that people are proud of, they can walk to. It brings about those chance encounters that we also desire every day, whether it's through a coffee shop or your health club or whatever it might be. I'd like to pull back to a couple of other themes, but before that, I do want to stick on Corbinia for a second. One mm. thing that's obvious about Corbinia and Menorah 
is that those suburbs were built to stop people wanting to drive through there. It's a labyrinth. Mm. It's nearly impossible to not get lost in those suburbs True. on purpose. Sure. And there are no town centers. And I believe that that was on purpose. It was designed in a way that the people that live in those suburbs certainly know how to get around, but no one else would bother to try and drive through there no. or walk through there or come through there. Do you notice that yourself and, oh, and make sure. that it was a bit of a challenge culturally to try and bring a town centre to a suburb that historically hasn't wanted people to join them? It's like many things. I think there's an ideology on paper that probably was beautifully created that established Menorah and Corbinia. Yet the people that live there are part of society as we all are that really strives and loves that contact and continuity of relationship that we all get. And I keep referring back to the chance encounters that we get. You go to a small village in Italy, for example, you see the lady on the street coming out in the morning, chatting to the people that go past, going to the bakery, going to a coffee shop and so on. And and these are, it's well proven, they increase longevity and they mm. increase the connection that people feel. And, Sense and, of community. And so, absolutely. Yeah. And and to me, that's something I'm, I'm very cognizant of and, and it's, it's paramount to the projects we do. So whilst what we're doing wouldn't necessarily sit in the labyrinth back streets at all, it can really only sit on as what you pointed out, yeah. as an entrance and similarly as an anchor and, and as a landmark to the centre of a suburb that then people can choose to be part of or not. The reason I have so much interest in the project in mm. Corbinia of the ones you're currently undertaking is I was a, an informal underbidder on this site. I saw I a lot of interest in this site in the first place, spoke to the owner. Yes. One thing I recognised is it had its height limits and with regards to working within the height limits, it was hard for me to justify the price that you've eventually paid for this site. Uh, clearly, there's something you know, this experience you have that I didn't have at the time. Mm. And it's obviated in the experience that you were having through Field Street, which seems to be the first project maybe that I've seen where you've been able to uh, extract extra height, extra levels out of the site over and above the acceptable outcomes in the R codes and then bring that confidence into the next project and then the next project we'll speak about too on Lake Street. Mm-hmm. I mean, one side of the, of the coin would suggest, look, the guy's got a formula, he's got confidence in what he's producing and the support he'll get from the planning system. The other side of the coin would go, geez, that's ballsy. As you know, to be a developer, you've, you can't be scared of taking some risk. But at the same time, it's very calculated and it's something that you uh, only gather as you gather experience. I would probably not have done that in a different era or I wouldn't have earned the right to have do, to do it. And, and I suppose we've discussed Guildford. We achieved an outcome that was above height limit by double. I'd then gone to Clifton Crescent in Mount Lawley and achieved an out, a height limit discretion. Uh, we'd gone to Field Street and achieved the same. And I think that we'd earned it through a couple of things and, and, and a couple of ways, and I think we continue to earn it. And something you've got to keep proving, and that is that you do what you say you will and you put beautiful things into the environment that people locally actually want to live in. And more than that, even the people that don't want to live there, they, they, they actually visit. And with the coffee shops, for example, we started those through a passion, my love of cycling and, and coffee, of course they go together, and then buildings, what more better, uh, beautiful way to start the day than to be able to go to the coffee shop. And that sort of proved ultimately beneficial to us because we weren't just seen as 
nasty developers anymore. We were also small business owners invested in the communities and staying in the places that we choose to build. And that's something we've continued to do and we will continue to do. And uh, it's evolved now to, to Barvino and the restaurant in Clifton Crescent that's also proving you know, a lovely way for us to have different interactions in the communities that we're operating. So It's clearly become a theme, therefore, that extra height is coming out of your projects. I would suggest you've earned the, that right, whilst the planning system might suggest that no one has a specific right to that. I would suggest that you've built a brand that gives confidence, that allows for those benefits to have been demonstrated in the planning system. I'm sure a lot of other developers would like to have that, that right as well. And, and again, it is, I believe it is earned in a way, oh, is, in an yeah. intangible perspective, clearly sure. not on paper. No. But that leads me to the question which it ties into, I guess, a broader issue in in Western Australia we have right now. And I'm not sure if you've done the numbers on this, but is it a necessity in the projects you're doing that you gain that extra height? This is a more global conversation that I'm, I'm trying to extract out here. If you weren't able to achieve the height in those projects, would you be able to have started Clifton Field? Will you be able to have seen enough value in Lake Street or will we be sitting there with empty sites? To be honest, I think there's a certain responsibility as a developer. If you're looking in a city, uh, of, a, of a city as we are, that's expected to grow 50% by 2050, if it's a locality that's so close to the city, Sandy, there's a responsibility to look at what you can put onto the site. Albeit, though, I might I hazard to, to, to mention that for example, at Field Street, I could have put 50 small apartments there. Mm. We chose to do 30 large apartments. Corbinia, we could arguably do 50 little apartments. We're doing 33 large apartments. Mm. So, And we have a fixation on height. I've got a fixation on beauty mm. and great outcomes for the residents. So I don't look at it in terms of actually how much height can I get here. I actually look at it we go to the architects, I talk to them about a brief, I talk to them about the size, and we then, in tandem, develop something that, that fits. That fits. Well, that. Th this is the crazy yeah. point, though, is that, unfortunately, the system doesn't work that way. It doesn't, and, but it And it can. has created an issue on black and white paper, I believe, where there is a disjuncture between where society should be right now in terms of its infill outcomes that are simply allowable within the R codes mm. and where the feasibilities work. Sure. You, through experience, through quality, through delivering what you say you will deliver, have been able to work through the system, around the system to deliver as one of the only developers in Perth right now in your space, actually get stuff off the ground by many ways we'll talk about, but one of those ways extracting extra height outside of the planning system. What I'm trying to get at is, is the planning system currently broken? Should it have already allowed for the height that you've applied for? Look, it's a good question. And look, whilst, you know, like every developer and every homeowner, I suppose, that goes through the planning system. There's sleepless nights and a lot of frustration. But what people don't see, and I'll get back to your question, but what they don't see is that the year before you even lodge, the work that's gone into the, the not only your, your, your architects, but your consultant team, there might be 15 different consultants, and trying to assemble the, the absolute leaders of excellence in the industry to put up a proposal that is so compelling that then it, it would defy logic mm. to say it cannot be built or not approved. And so I think that to get back to your initial question though, should have these sites been, and, and is the system broken? 
I believe we're quite fortunate in WA in that if you can prove the compelling nature of your project, there is a pathway to get approval. That's right. That does not mean, though, that I haven't been challenged in the Supreme Court. Design outcomes pathway. Correct. Um, that I'm not challenged by local uh, interest groups and so on and will continue to be. Hmm. Should it be so hard, though, in a time where we have a housing crisis, where we're obviously moving towards needing more urban infill, and we're not talking 30 storeys here, we're not talking no. fin by scale, no, we're no. talking putting five or six storeys in activity centres on our major high roads, right? Yes, yes. Should it be so hard? Should you have to be, Tim, willing to be able to achieve these heights in the first place is probably the question I'm asking. No, look, I I don't think you should be. I think we're we're a city that that will evolve to those sorts of height limits. And I think we'll probably look back and wonder why there was such a tortured argument over these things. But, you know, you've got to come back to the fact too, as I see it, we're we're almost first generation apartment buyers here. And and what I mean by that is that it's actually a choice to live in. It's Mm. not just through necessity. People want to live in apartments Well, you think about Sydney, London, Hong Kong, there is no choice. That's right. They don't even talk about the choice. That's exactly right. And so we're we're in a community that that almost sees it as a God-given right to live in a four-bed, two-bath house bespoke. And a compromise to go into an apartment. Correct. Whereas we're now at a first generation where we're seeing buyers decide, actually, I want to live in an apartment. I want to be part of the community. I want to live in something beautiful in a place that I feel safe and secure. I want views of the ocean or rot nest. Correct, or or even my you know the the lovely topography of Mount Lawley or Kilbinia or whatever it might be, and and walk down to my favourite coffee shop. And so we're at a very embryonic stage of that, and I'd love to see us evolve, as you say, where we have a, a a planning system that is more appropriate for the times. I mean, what hurts me greatly to see is, to be honest, the continual expansion of Perth and mm. the soul destroying uh, projects that are miles from town with absolutely zero amenity apart from an anchored major shopping centre. You know, and I, I think no wonder there's depression. In the community it's of course uh, that happens though only because in my opinion we don't have a system that is workable enough in the infill space we have enough of a of a footprint in perth we don't need to expand this city any further the only reason that the system needs urban expansion land development is because the system doesn't allow for or incentivize enough projects like yours there should be 20 tim willings in perth right now they should fulfilling our urban infill needs there is one or two when you look at suburbs that are ripe for opportunity. I, I look at West Perth and I think oh, yeah. ge- geographically extraordinary. That should be like Perth Central Park, yep. you know, opposite Kings Park, Thomas Street. We should have 20, 30 level height limits there. I mean, it's just, why aren't people being incentivized to develop in West Perth? You there know, is no example, soul there. There's because, no soul. Because the whole area has been zoned for mining exploration companies and small private medical practices. I mean, you don't build a village around that. No, you don't. But, you know, as we all know, if you attract the people, the village has to come. That could be Perth's answer to you know something quite magnificent and and so when we go back to the areas that i focus on they have got soul i'm leveraging from that if you like i'm I'm sort of trying to reflect back what the community already is and i think that's why the projects work but there's other areas in perth that there's a lot of lazy land and we certainly haven't got any excuses for continuing to just expand the city Stewart and Lake Street is another example where uh, the initial developer put up, I think, a great design at the time, was ready to go, picked Pindan under a tender situation. Some would say they didn't see the writing on the wall there. Mm. Pindan's delayed the project, fallen over, and the whole project's fallen over. Tim Willing's come in and gone, geez, great site. I reckon I can make this work. Mm -hmm. But again, 
extra height seems to have been the way you've made it work. If you couldn't get the extra height, would that project have worked? The extra height there was necessary for a couple of reasons. There's a very high water table in that locality. And, and when I say that, it's down at 1.6. And to go down to basement on that site is simply uneconomical. The dewatering would have been millions. Indeed. So, and for, look, only 21 apartments. And I think there's two things to what we do. And, and whilst we keep coming back to the height, we're doing big apartments, high value apartments. And when we talk to that, they're attracting people already typically in the area out of their existing homes. That frees up housing supply and the whole cycle of life continues from, mm. from a housing perspective. And so I'd like to sort of reiterate that I suppose we look at it firstly, and, and I talk to this with Amanda Shears and other planners, leaders really around this subject who, who understand is that if you're doing bigger apartments, you often need bigger buildings. Mm. But it's not acceptable to just simply build a building that is bigger unless it is absolutely beautiful within the environment you're building it. Because it's, now, it's more obvious to see. Correct. And so, of course, beauty is in the eye of the beholder. However, we can all talk to beauty in art and fashion and all these sorts of things, and there's accepted leaders in those areas. And from my mind, I look to those people, and then I look to employing the finest architects we possibly can, and we challenge each other as to try to get the very best outcomes. So... I think that the, the reason the projects work is that we're putting highly crafted building on the landscape that is of a size and of a nature that is of a higher value that attracts people that wish to live there. Mm. And that keeps that sort of continuity of supply going. And Is it getting the best people in the first place? Is it identifying the best architect, the best planning team, the best people that are able to synthesize those messages that come off the page? I believe that's incredibly important. I think that if you similarly, like if you're a musical conductor and uh, you would want the best absolute performers around you and, and I strive to find the very best people I can to surround me and I encourage continual improvement. I don't suggest I know it all. I, I think, like I said earlier, every day you learn something as a developer. I love the fact that we challenge each other and so, yes, I would encourage anyone who wishes to develop property that they find the, the, the people... Pay for the best. Yes, but it's more than that because it's the relationship that you develop together. It's a mutual respect that comes out. You've got to like the person. Sure. You know, you're engineer, you're structural engineer. You can die on structure in our business. You can effectively not get out of the ground because you've spent too much in the ground. You know, so it's, it's really a case of knowing your team, trusting your team, robustly pursuing every element of the process right the way through. I think that there's so many different disciplines to, to development. It's, it's hard when you talk about it, but it's very simple in that ultimately everything we do is for the owners. And so my business is entirely predicated on what buyers might want, on what homeowners would want. And that's all I'm interested in ultimately. So then it's mm. a story to try to fulfill that. And I often think developers think about it a bit around the wrong way. Um, they they don't look at the feasibility that, first. That's right. You know, our building, and, and I think I keep coming back to that, we make a lot of decisions that aren't financially... Not the most efficient. Correct. We want to do the most beautiful outcomes in a manner we can continue doing them, that we're proud of, that people that love our buildings and enjoy them for a century. One of the other big issues that have has held back the rest of the industry that it clearly isn't holding you back right now in the apartment space is the availability of and the uh, pricing from the construction industry in this space, right? Mm -hmm. Most people in the apartment space who are sitting there with a DA, with a site ready to go, have been speaking to their builder. The builder's either said, sorry, mate, not building at all, 
or if I'm going to build, this is the price, suck it up. And that price is exorbitant. It may be 40, 50% more than it was around COVID mm. when maybe they couldn't get the pre-sales or the finance, Indeed. right? There's always yes. a problem. Yes. You seem to have solved that problem yourself out of maybe it's necessity, but it seems like you're the only one outside of maybe Far East Consortium working in a different stratosphere of, of scale here mm. who is building his own apartments. Obviously, that's helped you control and mitigate that construction risk, mm. but has it also helped the project financially stacking up in the first place? There's a couple of questions here, and, and I might say we ended up, whilst my father was a, a small builder and, and my brother is a builder, we didn't set out as willing to be builders. Came about through circumstance. We had a builder collapse on us in 2019. At first level, we'd sold a lot of the project. And uh, at the time, I spoke to my brother, who does a lot of renovations and and, and smaller, uh, brand new bespoke homes, and said, look, let's do this together. And we Were you all, packing yourself at the time? Oh, absolutely. And uh, look, I remember visiting the site the very next day after the builder had collapsed, talking to the brickies myself, talking to all the trades, telling them, I will pay you. And uh, I did. And we'd paid them even though we'd already paid the builder. And we paid them again to keep them there. And that built us a lot of trust uh, with the team. And I didn't know how we were going to build it at the time, but we managed to swiftly, my, and look, thankfully, my brother was uh, ready and uh, able to, to come up down and uh, we effectively took over the entire team. And we had uh, Commonwealth Bank backing us. I went and well, the builder collapsed on Tuesday. I went to see them Thursday with a plan to complete it myself. Um, they had to get approval because it was unprecedented as to what we were proposing to do, certainly for their team here. We got their support. We completed the building. And look, I'm proud to say that it won great recognition on completion, the highest recognition possible from the Architects Association for a multi-residential building. And I suppose that gave us the confidence to say, well, look, gee, why don't we build ourselves? And we didn't set out to do that, though, I might add. But when you realise you can't defer that risk or offset it, I would rather own the risk myself and have responsibility for myself. And mm. that's something uh, I'm very interested in. <laughs> that's what I pursue every day is really uh, face up to, to what you have and do the very best with what you have available to you. So we then uh, had another builder in Field Street. It wasn't going well. We'd sold the project well, but we were just not delivering. We were a year and a half behind program. I think we're six months into the program, which you know is hard to believe. But we then uh, negotiated them off the site and we took over that job. Now we're probably four weeks from completion. That's a $55 million on-end value building. We've sold 27 of the 30 apartments there from a, an average price of about $1.6 million up to four and a quarter. They're unprecedented levels for Mount Lawley, but this is a bespoke, beautifully crafted building. Mm. And, and what we're doing differently there is we've direct employed our own bricklayers and we did it at Pindan as well. They work for us. So uh, they're not subcontractors and so on. And we're You're not paying them per one. brick. No, none of that. And, and when you look at our buildings, you'll see why. They're crafted. That's helped us a lot. And so coming back to your initial question with the projects we've got, we're about to start West Parade uh, this later this month, which is an eight-story building in Mount Lawley down by the railway. Extra height? Extra height. There was a two-level height limit there. There should have been four. The council recognised that. But 
we've done a, a beautiful building, I think, in an area that is crying out for something special. It, I like to refer to it as Perth's Flatiron. It's, it's mm, just a it gorgeous, is. bold building. Were and you nervous about being across from the railway? Yes and no. I saw a fantastic project in Melbourne, actually, that inspired me. I'd built under a flight corridor in Guildford. We'd learnt a lot around acoustics. I personally love looking at railways. It's a bit of a, I just enjoy the aspect there. You've got a really, and what's quite spectacular is you've got view possibilities, which in Mount Lawley is so rare. So with an eight level building, naturally at level three there though, you can see to the city, you can see the hills, you can see the river, and we've got a three-sided building that's almost, it, it really is like a flat iron building. It's so, mm. so exciting. You started your career in sales. Are you mm. selling yourself? No, I do employ salespeople. And I think that, of course, uh, you know, to me, they're the most valuable in the whole equation mm. you know i think a lot of people forget that there's one source of revenue as a developer and that is uh, sales so uh, that's why our project is really engineered in such a manner that we only think about what buyers want uh, from the start so yeah we do employ sales team i've got a strong idea around how we do from our market ourselves and position ourselves and you know, I look to uh, naturally, like I'm sure others do, the high-end fashion brands, the high-end car brands, the beautiful hotel groups, and look at what we can bring in the realm that we're in to that. And we've got a um, great marketing team internally as well. Look, you've got a bit on your plate. Mm. Obviously, you're finishing up Field Street. Corbinia is going on. Stewart and Lake happening in Northbridge, Perth area, mm-hmm. and then in Mount Lawley as well. Mm. Is there anything else on the radar? Do you see a pipeline of available sites for me in my in my job uh, whilst i appreciate sales is a very important part of the of the project i would i would suggest that you make your money when you buy it's the site acquisition site that's probably the most critical one and what we do on our side i'm assuming you spend a lot of time in that space yourself look absolutely and and the, the interesting thing about residential development is it's it's an emotive business it's a hard business and I think that's why it's well suited to a single decision maker ultimately rather than corporate management because you can make the live decisions, the swift decisions based on where you see an undercurrent of of, of opportunity. And I think that there's great opportunity. I'm always looking at at possibility. I'm an avid cyclist. I run every day. I'm sort of looking at areas all the time, thinking of where you might want to be, where people want to be, you know, and and, uh, where opportunities might be. And, you know, I love Maylands, for example. Um, You know, if there was enough value to be captured there, I'd be building there now. Um, That's the question, though. Is it places like Bayswater and Maylands, will they be able to stack up this decade? I think they will. I think that there's going to be different delivery models and, and different capital structures that, that are available. I've recently been having some meetings at a government level to, to look at what opportunities there might be to deliver in different ways. You know, with the construction business as well now, we've got a, a broader capability, but what's most important to me is to maintain that interest in these right-sized buildings that I talk to, and that is those 30 and 40 apartments that, yes, there might be a number of them, but they're along absolute corridors of desirability around where the population want to live and work and play. For an apartment developer operating in your space, maybe they've got a location ready to go in Como, Subiaco, um, Jollymont, Nedland, something like that. Is Willing Construction open for business for them or are you simply (laughs) focusing on your own projects? Yeah, look, that's a good question. It's something we have been talking about because we have been approached by 
to developers, you know, of a similar size in different locations that are, that are looking for someone to deliver and to watch this space. Oh, I think it needs to be, right? And yeah. you're clearly... Uh, leading the way it's it's such a poignant time right now to speak to you tim Mm. because we are in the darkest we're in the 11th hour it may not even be the 11th the 10th hour i think i think there's still a while to go in this space Mm. where the only way out is the increase in prices of established fully detached dwellings Mm. given we still see apartments as a compromise by and large in this state for us given the fact that construction prices are not going down. They, at no point in the future will they be lower than they are today. No. So there is only one way out That's and it. it's going to take a bit of time for the rest of that market to push through. In the meantime, these apartment developers sitting there with a block, with a DA who want to contribute to the housing crisis, don't have a lot of options. And no. maybe it does take uh, the leadership that you've been uh, offering either directly through the construction business or uh, having, even having a phone call. I'm sure you're open to that coffee uh, <laughs> at one of the coffee shops Indeed. to try and uh, figure out how as a community of, of property uh, investors, developers, leaders, we can start to fix this problem and start to mitigate the need for further urban expansion. Oh, I do agree wholeheartedly. I think it's something yeah, I'm absolutely passionate about and uh, always very happy to have a discussion. Tim Willing, thank you very much for, <laughs> for coming in, mate. It's thank been you, a, a really fun chat and uh, probably one of the most insightful we've had in a very long time. Thank you. Very kind. Thanks for having me.